My guest today, Valerie Kaur, is an activist, documentary filmmaker, lawyer, educator, and faith leader. She rose to global acclaim in late 2016 when her Watch Night Service address asked the question, is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? The video went viral with 40 million plus views worldwide and her question, it reframed the political moment and became a mantra for people fighting for change. The daughter of farmers in California's heartland, brought up in the Sikh faith, Valerie earned degrees at Stanford University, Harvard Divinity School, and Yale Law School. But it was 9-11 that launched her down the now two decades long path of activism and advocacy when those in her family and community became the targets of hatred and violence. And over the last two decades, Valerie's work has led to policy change in everything from hate crimes, racial profiling, and immigration detention, to solitary confinement, internet freedom, and more. She founded Groundswell Movement, Faithful Internet, and the Yale Visual Law Project to inspire and equip advocates at the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and justice. And more recently, she's headed up the Revolutionary Love Project, which is both a movement and a powerful learning hub designed to help you learn about loving others, opponents, and ourselves. Her debut book, See No Stranger, it's both a memoir and a manifesto, calling us into our better, more expansive and conscious selves. This conversation opened my eyes in so many ways. And as I've been sharing the last few episodes, before we dive into today's conversation, To help celebrate the launch of my new book, Spart, we have been sharing Spart stories, drawing these fun and inspiring two to three minute stories from the book in the beginning of each episode leading up to the launch of the book on September 22nd. I was so inspired by these amazing people. I wanted to share their experiences and kind of short hits of inspiration and insight as we all make the transition into a season of reimagining and for many reinvention. So here's today's story. Laura Pena, who's a maker advocate, is an animator, designer, and filmmaker growing up in the Dominican Republic. She was always drawing. Everyone around her thought she'd become a fine artist. But her mind was more drawn to creating physical spaces. She'd vanish into a room for hours, moving boxes and pretty much anything else she could find to create physical representations of imagined environments. In her mind, the box in the corner would be an oasis in a desert, She was moving people around, creating scenes and telling their stories in virtual space. And Laura eventually moved to New York to study design at Parsons School of Design. After graduating, she began building her career at an agency designing video games for kids before focusing on digital motion design for everything from TV to film and the online realm. What started as designing and creating physical spaces in her childhood home for imaginary characters to move through evolved into a career building entire virtual domains, beings, and stories for millions to enjoy. But the virtual world wasn't enough. Eventually, Lara's advocate shadow spark type began calling her to apply her creative skills to make something that was more meaningful to her, to create in a more purposeful and heart-centered way. It gave direction to her maker impulse. As a young girl in the Dominican Republic, she'd benefited greatly from those who recognized and encouraged her to pursue what made her come alive. Lara was passionate about helping young girls discover and nurture their own uniqueness. So she decided to tap her maker skills to create a visual experience that would amplify the voices of girls around the world and help them claim their own power and stories. She launched 
She is the Universe Movement at sheistheuniverse.org became a one-woman film crew and began traveling the world interviewing teenage girls and featuring them in three- to five-minute mini-docs. And of course, she designed and built the She Is The Universe website and not only films but also produces, edits, and creates the motion graphics and special effects along the way. It's amazing to see how that early maker impulse to create spaces and tell stories has evolved and danced with her advocate shadow to create new ways to express itself over a period of decades. So if you enjoyed that story and are curious about your own Sparkotype or imprint for work that makes you come alive, grab a copy of Spark using the link in the show notes or just go to your favorite bookseller. Plus, when you order before September 21st, you'll get some pretty cool bonuses. Okay, on to our conversation with Valerie. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Just so excited to dive in. You know, um, the work that you've been doing for your entire adult life is powerful and compelling and necessary. And the lens that you bring to it is really unique and inclusive and accessible. Um, And I want to dive into all the different aspects of that. Mm. But let's take a bigger step back in time. You write so beautifully and you speak so beautifully about when you were a young kid, the relationship that you had with your grandfather and how central and how important he was in your life, especially when you were little. You're already going to make me cry. (laughs) Um, My grandfather helped raise me, so he was there before memory. 
He was the one who would rock me to sleep at night, whispering the prayers of our ancestors. He was the one who would drive me to school in the mornings. I would play at his feet as he tended the garden in the backyard. And Papaji, I called him, he was my mother's father, I called him Papaji, father. He was always humming the Shabbats, the prayers, um, almost like it was just a deep breath, you know. And I, I realized it wasn't so much that he was praying, but he was cultivating his orientation to wonder. I mean, he would just see the rainbows that appeared in the sprinklers and just say, Kamal, you know, how amazing, you know, <laughs> he would, he would look at the stars at night with me. We would talk to them as if they were our friends. I mean, he, you almost imagine it as childlike. And yet this, this man who was filled with a sense of wonderment of all around him was also the bravest person I knew. You know, he, he was born in, in what is now Pakistan before the partition of India. And so he fought in World War II in the British Indian Army. I grew up with stories of him, you know, saving one canteen of water through the deserts of Libya and Egypt and saving that one canteen of water to wash his long hair while his British superiors laughed. But that's how important his hair, his turban was for him, the articles of his faith. I grew up with stories of, of him, you know, escaping the, the mass violence and the trains filled with the dead during the partition of India during that when Pakistan was carved out of India and him and his family had to, to migrate to, to what is now Punjab. And, and I grew up with stories of, of, of him surviving the pogroms in, in Delhi in 1984. And every time in the face of death, he, he would recite this prayer, the hot winds cannot touch you. You are shielded by love. So my grandfather was the person I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> you know, he wasn't just the gardener or the poet. He was the warrior. <laughs> and he saw me as a warrior. I'm like, I'm a little girl in two long braids. And every time I'd come home running from the racial slur or the mean girls at school, he would look down at me and say, my dear, don't abandon your post. <laughs> you know? Honestly, Jonathan, I feel like my, my whole life since my childhood has been this beautiful attempt to keep the promise I made to my grandfather to not abandon my post. Mm. So powerful in so many ways. And you know, one of the things that really lands with me is this, what seems like a like a, an irreconcilable duality of ferocity and the warrior side mm. and the conviction while at the same time standing in a place of utter openness to wonder, to newness, and to... Gratitude for every moment, everything, every person, every interaction. You know, I think it's easy to look at those two states and say, well, how could they coexist? And yet he modeled them in this really powerful way for you. Oh, he did. You know, what a delicious tension, a juxtaposition. It doesn't seem like it would make logical sense. And yet that's how, how he lived, how he saw the ideal in the Sikh faith in, in the Sikh tradition is the Santh Sapahi, the Santh Sapahi, the sage warrior. The warrior fights, the sage loves. You know, I, I began to see it as a path of much later in life, as a path of revolutionary love. And I began to think, you know, what does it mean to live into that every day? And the sage, the santh, is enraptured by the world as it is. <laughs> and the warrior, the sapahi, is laboring for the world as it ought to be. Mm. So how do we hold that? The both of that. And this is where, you know, I use warrior metaphors and I use birthing metaphors. I keep thinking the midwife, she says, breathe, my love, you know, and then push and then breathe again. There's a, a 
surrender in the breath, an orientation to the present moment, to sensations, to being here now with you, Jonathan, and this magical moment that is just existence and being enraptured by it, finding it wondrous. (laughs) And then in the next moment, taking the deep breath after the breath, okay, we roll up our sleeves and what do we do now about Afghanistan or inequality or COVID or what is my role in the labor to make this world a more just place for us all? And, you know, what ends up happening is there there ends up being a little bit of breath in the bush and a little bit of push in the breath. You know, it just becomes a, the way of, a way of moving through the world, the Sant Sapahi. Yeah, it's, it's so powerful. You know, I, I think I was first introduced to these two seeming polarities, but really complements really through Eastern philosophy, through Buddhism, mm-hmm. and through the, the way that Thich Nhat Hanh moved through the world also, in that, you know, somebody where I think a lot of people would look at Buddhism and say, well, the, the whole goal is to be, to be present, to accept things as they are in the moment, and to just cultivate the skills and the practices and the tools to find equanimity in that mm-hmm. space and to just allow. And yet here's somebody who lived and, and, and similarly faced all sorts of other atrocities against himself and the community and reached a point where, where he said, you know, I, yes, and, hmm. you know, I have to conceive of a better world and I have to act at the same time, but to not forsake whatever grace you can find in the moment. And at the same time, you know, have enough presence in the future, in, in the space of becoming, um, not an easy dance to do, I think mm. for any of us. Mm. Oh, I've, I let go of the idea of perfection a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> the hard way. I finally had to learn that, you know, I, I think as as soon as we make our heroes saints, we strip them of their power because yeah. it means we cannot be like them, that, you know, we deny them their full humanity. And and what I love about my grandfather, and I, you know, I, I tell the story in, in my books, you know, Strangers, that as beloved as he was to me earlier on, we ha- we had to wrestle, we had to struggle later on in life in the messiness of it all. And, and so I've, now I've come to think of my life as a series of experiments with revolutionary love in here, in the intimate space and out there in the world. And it, if it's a series of experiments then I can just show up with the bravery I can muster and make the mistakes <laughs> and learn from the rough edges and show up again. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, one of you, you shared that, um, your, your grandfather's tradition and, and the tradition in which you were brought up, the Sikh tradition, Sikh faith, um, part of that, the lineage and part of the, um, is that, is, is the warrior side from in the most fundamental way in that, um, you know, the, it, it, it requires you to be observable and present in the world. Hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it's sort of like part of the edict is you, you must be in the world and, yes. and forward facing and, and wearing certain things and stepping into uh, the outside world in a way where there's nowhere to hide. Yes. And it, and it sounds like that, that's very intentional in the underlying, um, in the essence of the tradition. Yes. Well, you know, in, in the Sikh tradition, we are, we're invited to wear these five articles of faith. And one of them is this long, uncut hair, which men, some women, wear in a turban. The hair, the long hair, the turban, was meant to be seen, (laughs) meant to make it so that we could not hide. You know, Guru Nanak said, if you wish to play the game of love with me, step forth with your head on your palm. The the first teacher of of the Sikh faith, for him, you know, this is what my grandfather would say too, 
love is dangerous business, you know, <laughs> for if I see you, if I, if I choose to see the world through the eyes of wonder, and if I choose to see you as a part of me, I do not yet know. You, Jonathan, are part of me I do not yet know. I must be open to hearing your story, to letting your grief in my heart, to fighting for you if you are in harm's way. That kind of love has always been disruptive, has always challenged the oppression of any era. Because what if we saw George Floyd as our brother and Breonna Taylor, a sister, migrant child caged at the border as our own daughter? You know, what would we risk how would we show up differently if even a fraction of that kind of energy we could bring to our labors in the world? And so six became, you know, known as warriors because we could not hide from the fight, literally. <laughs> and so how ironic, you know, how ironic, Jonathan, that these markers of faith, that these turbans meant to represent our commitment to love and serve and fight for justice for all was the very thing that marked six as terrorists in this country for the last 20 years. Hmm. I know you've also, you tell the story how when you were younger, you know, as, as much as you adored and revered your grandfather and, and, and his teachings and his ideas and his stories, um, like any other child, I mean, when you're young, especially, you just want to fit in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you don't want to be different. You know, it's like we, we can have these very heady and deep and real conversations now. And then, but there's the window for, that we all go through where we're just like, please, like, let me not stand out. Please. Um, and, <laughs> and it sounds like, like you, you had that season in your life as well. And I love that you share those stories too, because I think it's easy to you know, for us to sort of look back in time and, and paint the picture that we want the story to be yeah. and then let that story be told publicly. But like you said, <laughs> when we start our conversation, you know, like when we, when we paint the perfect picture, you know, we're really creating harm um, and we're setting expectations that ripple out and don't have the effect that we originally intended. But mm. as, you know, and, and, and I thought it was beautiful that you shared like as a kid. Okay. So there were stories that you told. I think the line was like, you know, people would say like something like, oh, you're Indian. And you're like, oh, I'm not that kind of yeah. Indian. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, I, I'm not the, the kind who lives in teepees or I'm not the kind who worships idols. I mean, even saying these things, I am just, it's like sticking in my mouth because I can, I can feel how damaging and how hurtful it is to hear that for indigenous peoples or Hindu Americans or, and yet- isn't that what white supremacy does? <laughs> you know, it, it pits us as people of color against each other, you know, clamoring for our proximity to whiteness. It's like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm dark, I'm, I'm, I'm Indian, but I'm not primitive like those people over there. So please have me over for dinner. I'll use my fork. You know, like it's, it, was, it was in the subtle ways, in the subtle ways you see, I could see now only looking back on my life, how internalized oppression made its way into my psyche without, without knowing it. And then how I then became a participant in that kind of subtle, ongoing brutality. It took me years to wake up to it, to understand what had been done, and then to choose differently. Mm, yeah. It seems like one of the moments when you were younger that really changed you and started a process of waking up and, and maybe looking differently at the world around you. After you had been also surrounded by, it sounds like, kids who were very devout in their faith and very, very attached to the belief that there is one path. And that was not your tradition. That was not your faith. You were not a part of that. You had this experience with this one woman named Faye that seemed like it was just, it was 
even just reading it was just so heart opening. I've been trying to find her. <laughs> mm, oh, no kidding. I, yeah, we had exchanged letters, you know, oh gosh, 25 years ago. I haven't been able to find her, but I've been wanting mm. to because she was the first Christian I had met who didn't believe I was going to hell. I had so many encounters as a kid with, I lost best friends, teachers who tried to convert me. I remember a neighbor brought over someone who performed an exorcism on me because she said every time I was hearing a voice in me that said there were many paths to the divine, that was the devil speaking to me. So I had a number of really traumatic moments and every time tried to find, you know, respond earnestly. And there was this one one day, one Sunday morning, I go to the Gurdwara with my grandfather and I'm listening to the kirtan, listening to the prayers. You know, all of Sikh scripture is devotional poetry. And so worship is just listening to those poems set to music and song. So here's my grandfather closing his eyes, just losing himself in the poetry, right? The surrender, the wonder into oneness. Like that. that's our practice. But I am like, my fists are clenched. My heart's beating fast as I'm thinking back to all of these encounters and wanting to fight back, thinking we are a warrior people. What are we doing here hiding? So I left in the middle of the service. I got up, I marched out of that Gurdwara in downtown Fresno. I went down the street to the first church I could find and and it was locked. So I went to the next church <laughs> and I, I just pounded the door. And Jonathan, I don't know what I was thinking. I think I just, I was like, I'm going to confront the priest in front of the congregation. I'm going to fight for my people. <laughs> you know, I'm this teenager. <laughs> and the door opens and there's this, there's this light woman in this beautiful flowery dress and the church is empty. You know, I'm like, that's when I learned that <laughs> Christians usually finish their prayers before six do. <laughs> we're, we're a little later in general. And she was the, the church organist and she was had been practicing and she said, can I help you? I, and I thought of some kind of excuse. I'm like, can I sit and listen to you play? She said, yes. So I sat in the pews trying to figure out how to, how to get out of there. And she set her fingers on that organ. Oh, Jonathan, it was like, you know, a thousand birds, like leaving a tree at once. It was this burst of energy and harmony. And as the music went on, it, you know, I closed my eyes and I could just, I didn't know if I was in the church or in the Gurdwara. And I had these images of Jesus and from his hands, you know, not condemning me, but his arms outstretched. And from his hands, the, the forming of the Ik Om God, the central truth of the Sikh faith, oneness. And by the time she stopped playing, I was just sobbing. And she said, what's wrong? And I, I realized that, you know, I had finally tasted, you know, and the Sikh faith is called Sahaj, that ecstatic moment of hmm. surrender, vismad, you know, ecstatic wonder. I, I had experienced what my grandfather was trying to teach me all that time, but inside of a Christian church. <laughs> so the irony of that, I had come to go to battle and I had found my sanctuary and the and Faye, this beautiful woman, she said, "Well, tell me, my love, like, why are you crying?" And I said, "Well, I I just can't believe in a God who would send me to hell." You know, I'm I'm like, "Oh, maybe this is my moment that I got to fight her." And she says, "Well, I I can't either. I think there are many paths to the divine." <laughs> I started laughing, and she starts laughing, and I'm like sobbing into poor Faye's blouse. You know, she's holding me. This <laughs> And we sat there for a long time, just talking and laughing about, I don't know, you know, she, 
it's like she chose to see me as someone who was a part of her that she did not yet know. You know, come sit, listen, mm. t- like tell tell me, tell me about you. And I remember returning to my grandfather. You know, I didn't even tell him what had happened. He just had this beautiful, soft smile, and we got in the car and returned home together. And that moment, Jonathan, stayed with me all my days. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I often wonder when you know you're a kid and you have a, an experience like that that maybe lasts minutes. Yeah, and there are these little, there are these like vignettes that just stay with us decades and decades later. And I think yeah. sometimes we don't even really understand what's been revealed until we revisit them way later in life and say, "Oh, oh, this is what really happened yeah. there." You know, we just knew something happened, so they they were so laden with emotion that they become embedded in our psyche. Yes, but we don't understand what what the learning is mm. from it until we until we're much further into life and reflect back and it it sort of unfolds mm. it's almost like the, all the little tiny traumas the the microaggressions the conversion attempts are just like little tiny blocks of ice that had been in my body <laughs> like just freezing parts of me and that encounter was just like the warm water just melting it away i mean i feel like i often think of healing as the long journey of returning to one's body and that freedom is, you know, being at home in your body and therefore at home in the world. And that moment with her returned me to my body, returned me to a sense of home in the company of another. And I do think that's why I've carried it so many years, because it's the antidote. <laughs> mm, yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all 
in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I guess the other thing that arises for me out of that story, and, and it's a curiosity, is so so there was this thing that was revealed to you, but at the same time, there was there was this impulse in you that was so strong that you literally got up, <laughs> you left your grandfather, you walked down the block, you pound on one church. It's and, and like that church is locked up, and you're like, no, 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 <laughs> I am not done. I am not done. Like there's something has to happen here. And you go searching for someone else. So there's clearly this fire in you. There's a sense of right and wrong, a sense of justice, but but not just a sense of it, but a sense that I need to do something with this. I need to act on it. And I wonder if I wonder if that was a common thread earlier in life or whether that moment also was in any way catalyzing around that aspect of you. Mm, oh, how beautiful. I think it wasn't a recurring theme. It wasn't like I did brazen mm. things all the time. In fact, I was a very good girl. You know, I, I would keep my voice down. I would keep myself small. I would only raise my hand if I really had the answer fully formed in my mind. You know, it was, it was I, I had imbibed enough of the messages that to be good or to be liked or to be lovable as a little brown girl is to make other people feel comfortable. And so <laughs> this was not that, right? This was, this was like realizing that a whole childhood of that wasn't, you know, was making me like crawl in my skin. And it, there, there was something, you know, because my grandfather would always tell me the stories of the warriors of our faith, including the woman warriors, you know, the, the first woman warrior who leads the men into battle. She goes where no one else will go. She becomes the one she was waiting for. And, and in our Gurdwara, even there are port, there are portraits on the walls of these warriors and these battles and these martyrdoms and these, this willingness you know, not not only to not make other people comfortable, but to stand up for the sense of mm. what is right. And I, I was standing up. It, it was very clear in that moment. I wasn't doing it just for myself because the charge that I had from from those who tried to convert me was like, you need to do this for your family, for your grandfather, your parents, your little brother. They're counting on you. If you don't do this, eternal suffering. I would have dreams of Judgment Day, Hellfire. Like my family's destiny was, you know, and I love them so much on my shoulders. It was a matter of life or death for me. 
and until like I I understood that what I needed to do was not you know figure out how to convert them. <laughs> it was to protect them <laughs> because they were good and lovable and beloved by the divine, just as they were. And so I think it all kind of culminated in in that moment. And and thank goodness that the result was so was so life giving because then. I think that was probably the beginning of me like, okay, maybe I can stand up again and see what happens. Yeah. Do you, I'm, I'm fascinated by the concept of sliding doors. Do you ever wonder, do you ever reflect back and wonder what would have happened had you knocked on that second church door and either nobody was there or there was an open congregation and this like notion <gasps> of you walking down the aisle and saying like confronting, <laughs> do you ever think back and say like, I wonder how different my course would have been had the scenario been a little bit different in that moment in time. Oh, that is so delicious. <laughs> right? Because who knows what would have happened? You know, it could have been someone with the same sensibilities in their hearts and they're going to model this this beautiful welcoming before their, their whole congregation. But I don't know, n- knowing the Central Valley in the 80s at that time, it probably it probably would have been a confrontation that would have caused the the priest then to defend um, and to and bef- you know, himself before the church, and then would have caused me to be the the lone warrior. And then, oh my goodness, who knows how that would have turned out? You know, I I've, I'm I'm understanding now that you know you don't give birth alone and you don't go to battle alone either. <laughs> You need your people with you. <laughs> so <laughs> I learned that clearly later. Um, so I'm I'm lucky that it turned out the way it did. Yeah, no, it, it, it's beautiful. You wonder if there was a little bit of intervention there in some way, <laughs> shape, or form. If if you believe in these types of things, yeah. um, you know, it it feels like also you know like you have been set on a path for a long time now for for your teens for your entire adult life of deep inquiry, self inquiry, but also you know inquiry of everything and everyone and also activism you end up when you go to school you know studying you're at stanford you're studying religious studies and international affairs and then would eventually go on to explore divinity at harvard and then law at yale but early on in that journey there's a moment that touches down in your life and touches down in all of our lives as somebody who uh, grew up outside of New York City and, and mm-hmm. lived there for 30 years once I was an adult. You know, like I was in the city on 9-11 in 2001. And I experienced it in a very particular way, being a native New Yorker, mm-hmm. um, knowing people that were in the towers that didn't come home that day. Mm-hmm. And just being in a, in a state of profound mourning, being in this very place where this thing happened. And that that moment forever changed me in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um you experienced it in a profound way, but also very differently than me. Mm-hmm. First, Jonathan, I just, I, I wish I could embrace you right now. I just, the, the trauma of that, of being so close to it, of losing loved ones, of, you know, it's been 20 years and that trauma is still inside of us and, I, th- I often think about, you know, that night the president makes this declaration that we're united in, in unity and mourning and then declares a war on terror. And you can't grieve and prepare to kill at the exact same time. So I keep thinking that all of us are carrying some unresolved grief around what was lost. 
it's interesting to hear you say that because as as someone in the city, the messages that started to come in to me from folks outside of the city, um, from all over, were more. We need vengeance. Let's go. Like take. Let's right this wrong. Mm-hmm. And in New York, in that moment, we were all in a state of profound trauma and grief. Right. We, we, our, our mind was not about, you know, like, where do we go from here or retribution or how do we, we were just in a state of profound, profound grief. And it struck me even then, I was like, wow, this is, people are experiencing this in just very, very different ways. And I just kept thinking to myself, I'm like, I don't know if we'll ever be there, but, but we're not there now Mm. for sure. Like, this is not the time or place. Um, we need to be with this and grieve. And, but, you know, it's almost like the proximity to the event was partially a determinant of the response that folks had. And, and not judging or shaming anyone about it. I think we're all human mm-hmm. beings who react in a certain partially coded way. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it was interesting for me. And, and then for you, um, like you said, the president goes on TV and makes these statements. And you know you, you and and your your community yeah. and and anyone with brown skin in the country at the time are affected in a very different way than me. I was a kid in college. I was home for the summer, and I was watching the towers fall, you know, on that endless loop, like sitting on the floor of my parents' bedroom and and then we saw the image again and again of the turban and beard. And that's when I realized, oh, our nation's new enemy looks like my family, my grandfather. And, you know, at that, at that point we had been living and farming in California and America for a hundred years. And, and yet overnight, you know, we, we got these desperate, messages. This was before YouTube, before social media, before we had any channels to tell our own story. So it was just emails. So between the emails and the phone calls, it was just these desperate messages. My 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 brother's been beaten, my sister's been stabbed, our Godwada's on fire, our house of worship, you know, is is been graffitied. A Molotov cocktail has been thrown through the window of our home. Someone's going to die, someone's going to die. And then on September 15th, we got the news, a phone call that Bulbir Uncle had been standing in front of his gas station planting flowers in Arizona when a man shot him five times in the back. The man, when arrested, called himself a patriot. And Bulbir Singh Sodhi was uh, the first person killed in all the hate violence that followed 9 11, and he was a family friend. So at this point, I, I've my, you know, I, I, I have, I have this crisis, you know, I, I, I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do with my country under attack. My family, my, my people, my community cannot leave the house because we're under attack. And Bobir uncle's story barely makes the evening news. All of these stories, you know, it, to the extent that the media chronicled them, they were identified as isolated incidents in an otherwise united nation, but, oh, but they were, you know, hate was just braided into, every day of our lives. And 
And so I, I was like, I have, you know, do something, anything. (laughs) And I, um, at that point I was supposed to take a semester abroad to work in India to collect the oral histories of the partition. I wanted to be a professor of religion. I wanted to be an academic. Mm. So I was going to go study violence in the past and hear violence was happening all around me in present time. And, and thank goodness the university was like, there's no way you're going near Pakistan because it's too dangerous. Not realizing that it was far more dangerous for me to be crossing the country with my turbaned cousin in the wake of 9-11. But they said yes when I proposed using that time and my camera to document hate crimes in, in the wake of the attacks. So the, within a week, we were on the road going from city to city, home to home, Gurdwara to mosque. And we would arrive sometimes when the blood was still fresh on the ground and talk to people. I remember trying to seem all professional. Like I had, my mom bought me this like London fog coat and I had my first cell phone that my father gave me. And I'm like, I'm going to be the journalist, you know, capturing. And then, you know, they would open the door. We would call them auntie, uncle. They would give us some cha. <laughs> we would be drinking the tea. And then, you know, cause there were no, there's nobody else. There was, there was no investigative journalists. There were, where were the, the mayors? Where were the elected officials? There's no one else to really to um, hear the story, to, to grieve with them. And, and they would begin to tell me, and the hardest part of every testimony wasn't necessarily the act of violence. It, it's what followed. You know, it was just seeing their the crestfallen face, the the loss of lost sense of belonging, the stolen dignity, the oh, seeing themselves through the eyes of their neighbors who saw them as suspect, foreign, terrorist, and realizing that 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 had to have been part of how people had been seeing them all along. You know, 9-11 didn't cause the hate. It, uh, it uncovered what was already there. We had to already be see- be seen as the them to be expelled so efficiently from the us. So it was painful. And, and, and we still called it the backlash. We still treated it as if it was this finite chapter in U.S. history, this dark chapter that we would look back on with regret. And but the violence kept going. And all these years later, two decades later, hate violence has never fallen to the level it was at before 9-11. And our communities are five times more likely to be targets of hate today than we were before 9-11. So instead, it just initiated a new era, a new world, so that our kids are growing up never knowing that it didn't have to be like this. It could have been otherwise. Hmm. When you when you literally drive cross country and show up to, to record these stories and, and to see these people, ah, I mean, at 20 years old, you know, to try and like knock on the door and say, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be here and be the neutral, you know, like party to do the journalist thing. (laughs) And then it it had to have been just such a profoundly challenging moment on so many levels for you. And also a moment that it seems like, you know, that moment changed a lot of people's lives and the trajectory of their lives and their careers. And for you, it did in a way that um, you never saw coming, (laughs) you know. It changed everything. But for the last 20 years, you know, you have essentially been building on that moment. Yeah, it changed everything. Because the violence kept going, I kept returning to the road. And I went to divinity school. I'm like, this is my way to become an academic. But I kept returning to the road. And once I found myself behind bars and, you know, after a protest and I was abused by a police officer, 
that's when I realized, like, actually, a professor told me, like, look, <laughs> you, you, you're going to keep going out there and you need armor. You can't just keep showing up without armor. And so that's when I'm like, I applied to law school. And then the film that we ended up making from the footage, I, I worked with a filmmaker to make the film, ended up falling in love with him. He's now my husband. Our children are downstairs. I mean, it's, it's, it's surreal to think that every part of your life, everything I know now, I can trace back to that choice to respond to those towers falling and Bill Uncle's murder with not making myself small, but trying to show up to it. And and I have to say, though, Jonathan, with every film, with every lawsuit, with every campaign in the last 20 years, I still held on to this idea that we were making the nation safer for the next generation, that we were going to, you know, mm. that there was a sense of linear progress, that we just had to. And that all came falling apart for me when my son was born. And that first year of his life was the 2016 election season and hate violence was just skyrocketing once again. And this time I, you know, I opened up my toolkit and at this time, by this time I had accumulated such a robust toolkit, you know, like I could do the lawyering, the organizing, the filmmaking, the speaking, like what, and I couldn't, I was just paralyzed. Once again, I couldn't pick up any of it. I left my job at Stanford Law. I, um, I got really quiet and I began to think, it's like, okay, there's something deeper here, some deeper malady that our problem as a nation is not simply a political one or a social one. It's it's a spiritual one. And as much as I had been fighting for sound government and just policy, and as much as we need those just policies, what we truly need is a shift in culture and consciousness you know, a, a new way of being with each other, of seeing each other. Six just don't need to be known. You know, Black people have been known. Indigenous people have been known. It's knowing is not the problem. It's, need, it's needing to be loved. You know, it's needing to be seen as kin. And, and that's inviting people into uh, seeing through the eyes of wonder, seeing no strangers. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I've spent the last 20 years of my life organizing around hate. I'm going to be spending the next 20 years of my life organizing around love. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it all, it, it all comes back to that line that you shared earlier, you're part of me, I do not yet know. Yeah. If we could come to that place, and it sounds like you've come to a place where you said, okay, so we've been trying to approach these problems in a particular way or a particular set of ways for generations now. Yes. And it hasn't yielded a whole lot of, of change, sustained change, meaningful change at scale. So what if we stepped in with a different lens? Um, you, you have a, a phrase that you mentioned very early in our conversation, but we'll circle back to revolutionary love. Mm -hmm. um, and so my curiosity is when, when, when you say, when we talk about revolutionary love, what are we actually talking about? Mm. Revolutionary love is the bravery to see no stranger, to say you are a part of me, I do not yet know, and then let all of your actions flow from that way of seeing each other. I declare that revolutionary love is the call of our times, but really, Jonathan, like, it's ancient. <laughs> this call to love has been on the lips of spiritual teachers, indigenous healers for thousands of years. You know, Jesus calls us to to love our neighbors and 
Muhammad to take in the orphan, and Abraham to open our tent to all, and Guru Nanak to see no stranger, Mirabai to love without limit, Buddha unending compassion. I mean, we've heard these calls to love. Historian um, Karen Armstrong calls it the Axial Age, right? Starting in the 8th century, this idea that we began to awaken from a tribal understanding, although only those in my tribe are fully human, to a, a sense of shared humanity. So we've heard that call to love for centuries. I feel like we're in the midst of a second great awakening, a second great transition, like a second leap in human consciousness. Will we be able to embody that ethic of love in the way that our society is structured and the way that we do community with each other to affirm human dignity at the center of it all? Like, will we be able to to do it not just in the wake of crisis or in the wake of the violence, but actually as the way that we are with each other? Can we be pioneers in a new way of being with each other? I feel like that's the great question of our era, of this time of transition. And and this is why I, I've been asking this question. You know, the future is dark. Is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? Will we perish because we can't figure this out? Or will we begin to birth a world that is longing to be, an America that is longing to be? The midwife says to breathe and to push, there is a wisdom in sustaining longevity in any long labor. So my invitation now and my work now is around giving people the tools to sustain themselves in the labor of building beloved community where they are. Hmm. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The phrase revolutionary is interesting to me. <laughs> um, I spent a chunk of time studying nonviolent revolution dynamics and, you know, the sort of a, the person who so many people point to as the, the one who really figured out what is the transferable framework to be able to organize around these principles, a, a professor emeritus, Gene Sharp, who passed, uh, I think about two years ago, who developed this really powerful lens on that, that then became a, a short manual that actually has been used and passed around to, to see the organizing structure and the fundamental philosophies and ideas of so many nonviolent revolutions around the world in the last 30 years. One of the things that stuck with me so powerfully when I deepened into his work was he said, you know, we focus very often one of the stumbling points in any form of revolution is that you build the rally cry around what you want to move away from. Mm. You say this, you, know, you identify the oppressor mm. and you say the purpose of the revolution is we must take this down. We must topple this mm. person, this system, this paradigm. And he said that rarely ever works, right. you know, because if that becomes the goal, and then you end up actually building a solution, which is far better than that. But mm. that that thing still exists, then you're perceived as a failure. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, the alternative to that is to rather than focus on toppling this source of oppression, of pain, of suffering, focus on the qualities and the structure. Like, what are we building that will be so much better? so much more inclusive, so much more nourishing for so many more people in its place that people will no longer be able to justify clinging to the pillars of the past and they'll start to flock to this new thing. Mm -hmm. And whatever structure was supporting the old, it just disintegrates on its own. Mm -hmm. And nobody really cares if it's still left there in some ramshackle form of what it used to be or not because they're just focused on what are we stepping into? What are we bringing our hearts and our minds and our actions to, to create that is better moving forward? Um, and it's, it's, I, so I brought that overlay to your notion of revolutionary love. And I said, effectively, that's what you're doing here. Yes. You know, you're saying, yes, let's acknowledge the past. Let's acknowledge the existence of certain things that we, we don't want, but let's focus our energy differently. Yes. Let's create a container like the bound by and expanded by love. Yes and invite as many people into that and just let that slowly over time disempower whatever paradigm exists now because it just, it pales in comparison to the feeling it gives us 
you know, when you look at this new paradigm. That's it. I mean, does that land with you? Oh, absolutely. So deeply. In fact, I, I, I want to read you this excerpt from my book. It's yeah, the please. chapter called Reimagine. <laughs> and it's because, you know, coming up as a young activist, I was all about resistance, you know, resist, resist, resist. And there is a need and power in resisting for survival. But resistance alone won't deliver us in the ways that you have just illustrated. So here's the excerpt. The greatest social reformers in history did not only resist oppressors. They held up a vision of what the world ought to be. Nanak sang it. Muhammad led it. Jesus taught it. Buddha envisioned it. King dreamt it. Dorothy Day labored for it. Mandela lived it. Gandhi died for it. Grace Lee Boggs fought for it for seven decades. They called for us not only to unseat bad actors, but to reimagine the institutions of power that order the world. Any social harm can be traced to institutions that produce it, authorize it, or otherwise profit from it. To undo the injustice, we have to imagine new institutions and step in to lead them. That's it, Jonathan. I feel like this is our moment to declare what is obsolete, what can be reformed, and what must be reimagined. And when I invite people, especially in movement spaces, into reimagining, you can see how weak that muscle has been. You know? mm. Because part of the trick of oppression is that it just doesn't give you any space for breath. It keeps you in nonstop crisis response mode. You're always under siege. You're always responding to, to the latest cascade of crises. And, and I feel like, well, we need frontliners. All of us can't be there all of the time. And I had to learn that you know, the hard way <laughs> by, by realizing I couldn't, I couldn't stay there because I, wasn't, I was no good to anyone if I was so fatigued doing the frontlines work that actually we need people playing different roles in the ecosystem. And if we have enough people in those spaces to protect vision, protect imagination, hold up an idea of, of the world that we want to live in, then we're, we're accepting the truth that revolutions happen, not just in the big grand public moments, not just in the marches or the declarations or the topplings, right? Revolutions, true lasting revolutions happen when a critical mass of people come together to inhabit a new way of being, a new way of being together. And I feel like I've, I've been seeing it lately. It's invisible. It's hard to see. But I've been seeing it with so many people waking up from the pandemic, from the racial reckonings, from the 20 years of war, we're waking up and we're finding ways, sometimes inside of our existing church or schools, but oftentimes outside, to try to practice this thing called beloved community, that hard that hard work of, of being in relationship with one another, rooted in love. And when I look at the good life community you've created, I'm like, oh, <laughs> and, and I see it as a pocket of revolutionary love. Yeah, I, and I don't disagree with that at all. Um, you know, one of the things that I love also about the work that you've been doing, so you have this incredible, so much of your, your ideas um, and your story are written in this book, See No Stranger, which is a, a stunning book, by the way. And, and also as a writer, to know how difficult it is to write memoir, but also prescriptive to a certain extent. <laughs> it's almost, it's literally almost impossible to do that really well. But Thank you. <laughs> my mind, like I would read one sentence and my mind would melt with the craft of language. Mm. And I'd read another sentence and my heart would open with the depth of the ideas. Mm. 
And I was just like, oh, so powerful. That is the deepest like compliment. I'm just taking that straight to my heart. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really um, so beautiful to move. Um, and then to see, by the way, that the paperback version of it, the, the cover is based on a print that was done of you by Shepard Ferry, who is like literally <laughs> the artist who I've been following for my entire adult life because I'm obsessed with his work. I was like, okay, so to, to have to get Shepard to actually create a print for you, you have to be an extraordinary person in the world. So oh, I was like, no, All right. it was, it was, let me say, it was a, a total surprise. Um, I had Shepard's Obama poster up on my dorm room walls, right? <laughs> All through law school. So to fast forward, and it was, it was actually this art collective called Amplifier Art saying around the time of the inauguration of, of this year that we, we want to like hold up visions of the, the people who are pointing the way for what our nation could be, not just what we're against, but what we could be. And they brought Shepard my story. And I sat for a portrait, not knowing really what was going to happen. <laughs> and some weeks later here, he's he's not just taken my portrait. He's He found a way to weave sick wisdom into it. So mm. this necklace I always wear, the Ikkum God necklace, the, the center of our faith, the oneness, he made, he made that the mandala at the center of the portrait. Surrounded by kandas, these which which represent our willingness to fight <laughs> for justice with love, and then see no stranger, nako bedi nehi bagana. I see no enemy. I see no stranger. Those words he brought to life in the in the print. So it's it's honestly it still feels very surreal. <laughs> it's a great sure. honor, and and I, I feel like you don't you you can't really understand unless you see it happen. But there's a QR code on the back of the book. If you scan right. it. You hover your phone over the cover and my portrait comes alive and starts speaking to you about revolutionary love. <laughs> right. So like you just layered coolness on top of coolness <laughs> yes. here. I mean, we're talking about really, really deep topics also, but come on, there's also something like just kind of crazy awesome about this whole and thing. since the hardcover came out last summer, it's been really clear like, oh, this book is, is not a standalone book. It's anchoring a movement and a movement has mm. art and a movement has music and tools. Yeah. And so Ani DeFranco, Justin Tranter created right. revolutionary love songs for the book and for the movement yeah. and Shepard's artwork. And yeah. We've had both Ani and Justin yeah. on the show. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so clearly we're meant, we are meant to be hanging out yeah. together. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really, it's, it is amazing. And it is, it's a manifesto, you know, at the end of the day yeah. for revolutionary love. And people rally to that. People rally to the idea. People come to it and say, like, how can I step into this and be a part of it? And, and the other part of what I think is so compelling about what you've been doing is that, yes, you've written this really powerful work. Yes, you've been out there crafting language and movements and taking action. And at the same time, something in your brain says, Okay, so we need to create tools. Yeah. So that, you know, as millions of people organize around these ideas, they're not sort of like constantly saying, Hey, where's Valerie so she can answer our questions? Where's Valerie so we can do this thing? So you literally built, you know, like programming and tools yeah. and education to give to anyone who wants to step into this exploration and be able to guide themselves as individuals, uh, in groups, as communities. The Revolutionary Love Compass, I think, is sort of the embodiment. It's it's the it's the the framework for all of this. And I know, you know, like it would take a long time to actually deconstruct everything that's in there. But 
I'd love if you could share just sort of like the fundamental of what this tool is about, because I think it's really powerful. Thank you. I, can I share with you how it came to be? And then I'll talk a little bit about it. I, yeah, please. You know that moment of crisis that I had back in 2016 and realizing I had to shift from the front lines. I uh, had a gift that very few women who are mothers or activists are ever given. I, I got a room of my own, you know, I enough of a book advance to start writing and thinking. And I moved my family to the rainforest in Central America for a year. I opened up my journals and my books and I read everything I had written and read since the age of seven <laughs> and and was searching for patterns, you know. And I realized that what I was searching for wasn't just practices for revolutionary love that were taken from lived experience. I also wanted to be sure they were backed by research. So I put together a team of mm. scholars from neuroscience, ethics, education, psychology, history to be reading with me and researching with me. So as I wrote See No Stranger, I would be getting these memos <laughs> with, you know, and you'll see the end of the book has 40 pages of footnotes, of endnotes that that show how deeply researched it is as a manifesto. And what ended up happening in, in, in that whole process was saying, oh, love? You know, I'm a lawyer. Anytime anyone would say the word love, like I would roll my eyes. Like love is the answer. You want me to, uh, with what we're up against, the institutions that are perpetuating injustice. And I realized in, in this in this process that the problem was never with love. It's the way we talk about it. How do we go back to the love as the muscular ethic that was given to us from our scriptures and songs? How do we put that into practice? And so I began to define love as sweet labor fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving, a choice that we make again and again. And if love is labor, we don't have to get all mystical about it. If love is labor, love can be taught. Love can be modeled. Love can be practiced. What are the tools that we need? What are the core practices that we need? These 10 core practices emerged, you know, wonder, grieve, fight, rage, listen, reimagine, breathe, push, transition, joy, let joy in. And I began to imagine these practices as points on a compass. And we've organized them in such a way that we created the revolutionary love compass. So you can you can point the compass to an other and you'll see the practices that you might need to, to exercise as you're practicing what it means to see no stranger. You can point the compass to an opponent. <laughs> and I don't use the word enemy. An enemy is a permanent position, but an opponent, someone can slide into that that category in and out. And if it's a if it's an orientation to you, if this is someone who's opposing your way of being or your ideas, then then your your inclination is to is going to be to to dehumanize them, to think of them as monstrous. But the core practice here is to tend the wound. I've come to realize that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded, who act out of their own insecurity or blindness or greed. That doesn't make them any less dangerous. But when we choose to see the humanity of even them, we can awaken to the context, the cultures, the institutions that drive that harm. And we become smarter about not just resisting, but reimagining the context as a whole. So that's how we practice <laughs> orienting to an opponent. And then you turn the compass one more time to ourselves. So revolutionary love is the choice to labor for others, for our opponents, and for ourselves. And this is what so many social reformers skipped over, you know, the Gandhi, King Mandela, they taught us a lot about how to love others and opponents, but not at length about how to love ourselves. This is the feminist intervention. This is me going back to black women leaders, bell hooks, Audre Lorde, 
who teach us that caring for ourselves is part of the, the revolutionary work. So here are practices for how to sustain longevity, resilience, even joy in that ongoing labor. And I have to tell you, Jonathan, now, like when we formed the compass, it was initially like, this is what we need for our movements out there in the world. But I've been using this compass all the time in my own home. Like when my son is throwing a tantrum, he's an right. opponent to me. Like, oh, I know what to do. I can I can open up this compass and 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 take the tools out that I might need for him. So this is where I, I feel like, okay, if Michelle Alexander taught me this, she she actually has become a godmother figure in my life. She gave the book its name and she's the one who said, you know, what's happening here, in here is just as real as what is happening out there. So in your intimate life, in your relationships and the textures and the contours of your of your how you're relating to your kids, your family, your colleagues, that that is also where the revolutionary work happens, just as it is out there. So this compass is a tool that people are using both in the, their work in the world and in, in their daily lives. And that's been thrilling to see. <laughs> yeah, that that lands so true. You know, when I when I looked at it at first, I was sort of thinking, okay, so I can see how this applies, you know, in the context of all the things that we're doing in the outside world and the things that we're trying to make happen. And then I'm the same exact thing. I'm like, oh, this is actually a thing for your <laughs> friends and for your family and for your kids and for yeah. this is, it is just a tool to be able to step into any relationship from a place of equanimity and compassion, which is not easy to create and, and also not roll over, but have tools and process to understand like, how do I enter this? How do I engage in a way that feels constructive and inviting rather than destructive and exclusive? And I want to be clear that, it's not about bypassing those hard emotions either, you know? Right. A hundred percent. So yeah. grieving is a core practice on the compass. You know, grief is the price of love. Grief is how we show the depth of what we have loved. So grieving with others and then rage. I always was taught to believe that rage was the opposite of love. And it's only in doing this work and mining my own life that I really understood that no rage is the force that protects that which we love. So the solution is not to suppress your rage or, or to let it explode, but to process it in safe containers and then choose how to harness that energy for what you end up doing in the world. So I think the reason the compass has been so new for people is that Parker Palmer, the Quaker elder who has also been godfather figure for us, um, calls it the new nonviolence. You know, it, it makes space for our difficult, intense emotions to go through them and it protects, you know, the, the the need to to love ourselves. And there's also this idea that any one of us has a different role in the labor of revolutionary love at any given time. You know, if you have a knee on your neck, right? It's 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 not necessarily your role to look up at your opponents and try to wonder about them or listen to them. Your role is to take the next breath, you know, to stay alive. That's your revolutionary act. But you might be someone who's in a position to tend to the kinds of opponents. So much of the compass is, is understanding like what is my role in this season of my life, in this community, in this encounter, and then finding the courage to step in to try it. Mm, so powerful. It feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So sitting here in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what oh, comes up? Oh, to live a good life. <laughs> Oh, I, I go back to the Sant Sabahi, you know, to, to be enraptured by the world as it is, is to live a good life. To labor for the world as it ought to be, is to live a good life. I used to think that the labor for justice 
was a means to an end. You know, I will live a good life once we win this, once my kids are safe, once we... (laughs) And now I've, I've come to understand that, you know, we may not see the fruits of our labor in this lifetime, that we labor for a future we may not live to see. And so what does it mean to have the labor be an end in and of itself? And so when I show up to the labor with love, then my labor becomes porous enough to let breath in and to let joy in. And so Jonathan, I, I, I've, come to, I've come to decide <laughs> that laboring for a more just world with love and with joy is the meaning of life, the meaning of a good life. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, say that you will also love the conversation we had with Rev Angel Kyoto Williams about the intersection between race, love, and liberation. You'll find a link to Rev Angel's episode in the show notes. And even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download it so it's ready to play when you are on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app or platform. And if you appreciate the work that we have been doing here at Good Life Project, please go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things to you about your very favorite subject, you, and then show you how to tap those insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. See you next time.